Reading comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 8, verses 1 through 35, and can be found on page 156 of your pew Bible. Joshua chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and his king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai, He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You are to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you will be on the alert. I and all those with me will advance on the city. And when the men come out against us, as they did before, we will flee from them. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city. For they will say, they are running away from us as they did before. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. When you have taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it. You have my orders. Then Joshua sent them off, and they went to the place of ambush and lay in wait between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night with the people. Early the next morning, Joshua mustered his men, and he and the leaders of Israel marched before them to Ai. The entire force that was with him marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai, with the valley between them and the city. Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai, to the west of the city. They had the soldiers take up their positions, all of those in the camp to the north of the city and the ambush to the west of it. That night, Joshua went into the valley. When the king of Ai saw this, he and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in a battle at a certain place overlooking the Arabah. But he did not know that an ambush had been set up against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them, and they fled toward the desert. All of the men of Ai were called to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were lured away from the city. Not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out toward I the javelin that is in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. So Joshua held out his javelin toward I. As soon as he did this, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed forward. They entered the city and captured it and quickly set it on fire. The men of Ai looked back and saw the smoke of the city rising against the sky, but they had no chance to escape in any direction, for the Israelites who had been fleeing toward the desert had turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and the smoke was going up from the city, they turned around and attacked the men of Ai. The men of the ambush also came out of the city against them, so they were caught in the middle with Israelites on both sides. Israel had cut them down, leaving them neither survivors nor fugitives. But they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the desert where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. Twelve thousand men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had discovered all who lived in Ai. 
But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and plunder of the city, as the Lord had instructed Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He hung the king of Ai on a tree and left him there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take his body from the tree and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate, and they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what was written in the book of the Law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it, they offered the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on stones the Law of Moses, which he had written. All Israel, aliens and citizens alike, with their elders, officials, and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing those who had carried it, the priests, who were Levites. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all of the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the aliens who lived among them. May God bless the reading of his word. So many of you would know, maybe most of you would realize that Wellesley High School has been in the news lately, particularly in conjunction with their recent graduation ceremony. So David McCullough made national news when he announced in their commencement ceremony, none of you is special. You are not special. You are not exceptional. Contrary to what your under-nine soccer trophy suggests, your glowing seventh-grade report card, despite every assurance of a certain corpulent purple dinosaur, despite what Mr. Rogers told you daily, no matter how often your maternal caped crusader has swooped in to save you, you are not special. Yes, you've been pampered, cosseted, doted upon, helmeted, and bubble-wrapped. Capable adults with other things to do have held you, kissed you, fed you, wiped your mouth, wiped your bottom, trained you, taught you, tutored you, coached you, listened to you, counseled you, encouraged you, consoled you, and encouraged you again. You've been nudged, cajoled, wheedled, and implored. You've been feted and fawned over and called sweetie pie. And certainly we've been to your games, your plays, your recitals, and your science fairs. But do not get the idea you're anything special, because you're not. Now, this is not normally what we say to students as they graduate high school. It doesn't really fit with American culture. In fact, it was so outlandish that it made the national news. One high school graduation in the whole country makes the national news, and it's this one, because David McCullough had the nerve to suggest that every one of those students is not special. 
Now this, of course, he stands against the full force of American self-esteem culture. You know, everybody wins a prize, nobody loses, everybody's wonderful. Every child is spectacular. And it's so offensive to American culture, so outlandish in the eyes of American culture, that he can get on national news. But I would suppose, maybe, that we have a Christian version of self-esteem. I would suppose that, you know, when, whatever kind of culture we live in, typically, because we live in that culture, we pick up its values without ever thinking about it. So like a fish doesn't realize it swims in water. And so we pick up those values and we bring them into the gospel. And we shape the gospel. The gospel is shaped by those values. And we think, well, we're preaching the Bible. But what we end up doing is preaching the gospel, the, the, the culture rather than the gospel somewhat. And so, I mean, this ties in with a book I've been reading recently where the author, the thesis for the author, at least for two chapters, his thesis is this. In Jesus, there is nothing we could ever do that would make God love us more. And nothing we have ever done that makes him love us less. Catch that. In Christ, there is nothing we could ever do that would make God love us more. And nothing we could ever do that would make him love us less. God thinks we're wonderful. Now, if you've been here for a few weeks, we're working through our way through the book of Joshua. Think about it as we review what we've covered in the book of Joshua. There is nothing we could ever do in Christ that would make God love us less. There is nothing we could ever do that would make God love us more. Joshua chapter 1, God comes to Joshua and says, Be strong and courageous. Lead this people into battle. Obey me. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouths, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Do all, be careful to do all according to all that I've commanded you. But now... We realize he doesn't, Joshua really doesn't have to do all that. He doesn't have to lead the people. He can say, he can blow God off. And he doesn't have to obey the law and be careful to do all according to all that God has written because there is nothing he can do to make God love him more. And there is nothing he could do that would make God love him less. And, and then in chapter 2, you know, we see Rahab. And Rahab, well, she's a prostitute in, in the city and... But the one person in the city of, who, who thought, you know, the city of Jericho, who thought, you know, I better make peace with these Israelites or they're going to come in and kill me. And God rewarded her because she survived and her whole family. But actually, if we read that passage through American eyes, she, she can still keep prostituting. Because there is nothing she could do that would make God love her less. And she doesn't really have to side with the Israelites because there's nothing she could do that would make God love her more. And wouldn't it be good for Achan? You know, God said, take all this plunder, all the wealth of this city, and offer it to me in sacrifice. Burn it up. You can't use it. Burn it up. It'll be a way to worship me. And Achan took a few things. Not a lot. He took a few things. And wouldn't it have been good for Achan if there were nothing Achan could ever do that would make God love him less? 
and nothing he could do to make God love him more. Wouldn't his life have been a lot longer? Because he died for taking that stuff. Now, the book I got this out of is a good evangelical book. And if you look at the first few pages, you know, nowadays when you write a book, you really have to sell it yourself. The publisher will pu- publish it for you, but you really got to sell it yourself, which means you got to invoke all your friends. You got to get all your buddies. Anybody who you've ever done a favor for, they have to write a blurb saying how wonderful your book is. And you look, and this guy's got four or five pages of blurbs from famous Christian pastors, people we admire. Now, he has a lot of good things in that book. But we really have to ask, is this the biblical gospel of forgiveness? Is this the biblical message? There is nothing you could ever do that would make God love you more. And there's nothing you could ever do that would make God love you less. Christ has done it all. And in Christ, we can't add anything to what Christ has done. We can't take away. In Christ, we are secure. Whatever we do, God thinks we're wonderful. We are special. In Christ, because of Jesus, we are special. And nothing we can do can keep us, make us less special. Nothing we can do can make us more special. We are just as special as Jesus is. You know, and, you know, we even sing this once in a while. Uh, you know, uh, not, I don't think in this church so much. One of the things I like about our worship team here, there's several things I like about our worship team here. One of the things I like about our worship team is we actually vet the words to see about the content before we sing a song, which is always very nice. But there is a popular song that I'm sure many of you sing. Hmm, and I'm, oh, here it is. A thousand times I've failed, still your mercy remains. And if I stumble again, I'm caught in your grace. Is it true? A thousand times I failed. Not once or twice, but a thousand times. Still your mercy remains. Does it? If I stumble again, if I stumble a thousand and one times, I'm caught in your grace. Now, you can't expect a book to cover everything carefully. It's not a systematic theology. And you certainly can't expect a simple song to cover everything carefully. But there's a danger is that, you know, without any kind of qualifications, we could actually believe this. We could actually live that way. Now, I think there's two possible problems with that chorus. And I'll make a little, a little tangent here about that chorus. Two possible problems. And one of them is... Our problem and the other is maybe the chorus problem. But here's the thing. A thousand times I've failed. First of all, if you haven't failed a thousand times, don't beat yourself up as if you have. You know, there's a whole lot of guilt that circulates. And, you know, there's a whole lot of tendency, oh, God is spectacular and holy and wonderful, and I'm just a miserable sinner, and we beat ourselves over stuff that's not really sin. You know, oh, I lost my temper with my brother today or, or with my husband or wife. Oh, no, now I've sinned again. A thousand times I've failed. Well, now lighten up here a little bit. The New Testament is very helpful. It tells us what matters to God. And it gives us lists. Almost every one of Paul's letters has a list, and Jesus has a list. These are called sin lists. It's an entire subgenre. Sin list. If you've done something and it's not on that sin list, don't beat yourself up for it. You know, yeah, you were grumpy with your roommate. 
Okay, that's not great. That's not ideal. But you haven't failed a thousand times just because you were grumpy again today. You know, you, were short, you spoke shortly to somebody. That's not own sin. That's not sin. Look at those sin lists in the New Testament. If it's on those sin lists and it's followed by the statement, people that live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. If it's on those lists, then yeah, this is serious. Because it could keep us from inheriting the kingdom of God. But if it's not on those lists, let's lighten up here. Maybe we haven't failed a thousand times. Maybe we failed only three. And maybe that makes a difference. But, take example on the sin list, covetousness. If you've spent your entire life wanting to make more money for the sheer pleasure of being the wealthiest person around, and your family suffers, your wife and your husband and your kids suffer, then yeah, you've got a problem. And can you still your mercy remains? If I stumble again, I'm caught in your grace? Maybe not. You know, if you've committed adultery, a thousand times I've failed, whoa, babe, you've got some serious problem going on here. Uh, still your mercy remains? Uh, I don't know. If I stumble again, I'm caught in your grace? Really? So, you know, a song can't cover all the circumstances. It can't cover all the caveats. But that's what we want to do. We want to look at these kind of slogans today in the light of Joshua chapter 8 and then in the light of the New Testament. So turn with me. You really need to have your Bible open to do this. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 8. It's page 156 in your pew Bible, if you use the pew Bible. If you don't use the pew Bible, well, it's near the beginning. First, there's only two points I want to draw your attention to from Joshua chapter 8. Only two points. One is, forgiveness is available. If you have indeed done something from these sinless, if you have indeed done something that is totally inimical, you claim to be a Christian, and yet you've done something that is totally beyond the pale, it is nothing that Jesus would have ever considered doing. Forgiveness is available. The other thing I want to demonstrate from Joshua 8 and from the New Testament is there are some limits to forgiveness. So first, forgiveness is available. Now, you notice as uh, Terry read it, the whole story is about a battle. Well, I'm not going to look at the bulk of the story because I don't think that's where the key part is. You know, the, it's a battle. You know, God gave them a strategy. Go up to the city of, uh, I set, set an ambush and then they'll come out and try and kill you and then, you know, you're, you're, you can put them in an ambush, capture them and kill them all. We'll look at the whole issue of how can God justify killing all these people. We, we keep putting it off, but we will look at it one time. That's not what we want to look at this morning. What I want to show you, though, is the beginning and the end of the story. Because this story is anchored by the beginning and the end. And that's where its message lies. The rest of it is a detail of about a battle. But the message comes in the beginning and the message comes in the end. So take a look, first of all, at chapter 8, verse 1. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. The point of this verse is not what it says. The point of this verse is how it says it. 
Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Yeah, there is a point. You know, you're going to go to war, and you've just been beaten by these people. 36 of your soldiers have died, and now you're going to go to war again. It's scary. You know, there's something to be fearful about. There's something to be discouraged. Yeah, yeah, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. But that's not the real point of these words. Here's the real point of these words. Where have we heard these words before? This is not the first time that God has told Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, be strong and courageous. Remember chapter 1? God said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. You will lead these people to inherit the land. Remember chapter 1, verse 9? Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. When God says to Joshua for the third time, when God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. When God says to him, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. What is God saying to him? It's not simply, I'm going to give you victory. What is God saying? God says, last time, you lost because I walked away from you. You walked away from me, I walked away from you. And now they've dealt with it. And so God now says to him, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Why? He's saying to them, I've wiped that clean. I'm now back with you. Just as I said in Joshua 1, after this massive, massive, disgusting sin, after this severe punishment, now I'm back with you again. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. This is simply a paraphrase for God saying, I have forgiven you and I have restored you. We are back together again now. We're back in the days of Joshua 1, despite your sin. And we sang about this. You know, so many of these choruses we sang focused on this. The love of God is greater than we dare hope or dream. You know, let's say you gave your life to Christ. And you were eager and young and enthusiastic. And then, I don't know, one thing or another came up. And you really turned away. You did something that you can't believe now that you ever did. You, you did something that, that humiliates people you love that you're ashamed to own publicly. You keep it hidden, a little quiet. Even when you go to a men's group or a women's group, you don't talk about it because you're ashamed by it. This is the message of Joshua chapter 8, verse 1. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. God does come back to us. And we can come back to God. The love of God is greater than we dare to hope or dream. I'm running to your arms. I'm running to your arms. The riches of your love will always be enough. My Savior loves. My Savior lives. My Savior is always there for me. My God, he was. My God, he is. My God, he's always going to be. This is the message of Joshua chapter 8 verse 1. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. You can come back, God tells Joshua. And he welcomes him back with the very words that he welcomed in the first case. You can be clean. You can be free. You can be innocent again. In Joshua chapter 1, he said, 
Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And now in chapter 8, after the horrendous sin, he welcomes the nation back. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. There is forgiveness in Christ. This is the first part of the message of Joshua 8. But there's a second part. We can't just come back. God can't just say, come on back. He's holy. He's pure. He can't just, oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, I love you, it's okay. There's limits. There's conditions. Notice how they came back. What came just before Joshua chapter 8? Obviously, Joshua chapter 7. What happened in Joshua chapter 7? God said, there's somebody in your midst who deliberately, defiantly disobeyed me. There is a price to be paid. You must kill him. And so they killed him. They wiped him off the face of the earth and every remembrance of him. They killed his wife. They killed his children. They burned everything he owned. He, no long, he ceased entirely to exist. First, there was a price to be paid. It cost some people their lives. And their friends had to kill them. There was a price to be paid to come back to God. And maybe there's another caveat to coming back to God. The text doesn't say this, but it hints at it, so let me show you. Notice when they come back to God, notice how things have changed a little bit. Chapter 8, verse 1. Take the whole army with you. Remember the first time they attacked the city? What did they done? Oh, it's a small city, we can do it. Well, just a few of us will go. Now God says, is, now God says take the whole army. What God appears to be saying is, I can't count on your faith anymore. I see you in a new light now. I see you don't trust me. I can't entirely trust you. So don't take just a few. Take the whole army. And then what else does he say? You shall do to this city and its king as you did to Jericho. You should kill them all. Except that now this time, you can take their plunder. You see what God's saying? I, I can't trust you anymore. Not entirely. Last time I had to kill you because I said, don't take plunder, you took plunder. So now this time I'm going to lower the standards. I'm going to let you take plunder. I'm going to lower the standards. It's not just a few of you that have to fight this battle. You bring everybody. I can't count on your faith. I can't count on your obedience. So bring everybody. Don't trust me. Take plunder. Don't obey me. And you know, that way you don't have to obey me. I don't have to hold this high standard. So God welcomes them back. But he seems a bit, maybe, to lower his standard. Maybe, in a sense, you could say, God maybe learned a lesson and, and it affected how he dealt with them. He realized maybe they can't trust him as much. He realized maybe they won't obey him as much as he had hoped. How do you suppose God would feel about that? And maybe when we sin in a rampant fashion against God, maybe... maybe I've mentioned this before. I'm ad-libbing now. I mentioned this before. I, I would say there was one time in college where I did something. I, I knew it was totally out of hand. 
Well, I didn't think about it. I just acted. But I knew it well enough. You know, and, and it, I was only a Christian about a year. And up until that point, my relationship with God was, you know, I was like totally naive maybe, but innocent, warm. And after that, you know, it, I would suppose it took me three months or so to finally deal with the whole thing. And I mean, I came back to God immediately, but it took a while to, 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 for that thing to be um, no longer to be interfering in my relationship with God. Well, I would say from then on, probably it always interfered a little bit in my relationship with God. Mostly I got over it within three months, the ramifications of it. Now, I can't defend that biblically. Maybe the problem was not with my relationship with God or God's part of my relationship. Maybe even the problem was just with my guilt, you know. Maybe the problem was with me. I, I don't know. You know, Scripture doesn't say we can't ever get past it. And I certainly got mostly past it within three months. Did I ever get past it? Well, I was a lot wiser after that or a lot more realistic about my own passion for God, my own willingness to love God. And maybe that's what's going on here. Now, I don't want to say that's always true because God does forgive. God does welcome us back. So maybe it's just something that happened in my case and doesn't have, and in this case here, and it doesn't have to happen to you. But at least this much you could say. At least there's a risk of this happening. Think of, before this, think of what the Israelis, Israelites could say about, you know, God will let us go to war with just a few people. This is a powerful God who's really going to intervene on our behalf. He trusts us. God will tell us, hey, don't get greedy. Don't take all that stuff. Leave it behind, the gold and the silver and the fancy clothes. Leave it behind. God trusts us to love him more than we love that stuff. And now God says, well, take everybody and take all the stuff you want. And now you think, well, maybe they forfeited a little bit of God's trust. It's not explicit in the text. But it seems to be implied twice. So I, I invite you to consider it. Now the third point is very, very clear in this text. After they've received God's forgiveness, after they've come back to God, after God has said to them, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, there is a condition, there is a price to be paid. This did not earn them God's forgiveness, but it is a condition if they're going to keep God's forgiveness. And it's not just a condition once, it's at least seven times. Look at the end of this chapter, verses 30 to 35. Then Joshua, why, why? You know, here they have a battle. And then what you've got to ask if you're reading this chapter is, why is 30 to 35 here, verses 30 to 35? Why that last paragraph? They had a battle. Why not just celebrate this? We won the battle. Great, great. It's a great place to end a chapter. But they don't end a chapter there. You know, why not? What happened? See how they end a chapter. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. That's point number one. Second time. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses. Why did he have to say it a second time if he'd already said it one time? There, verse 32, there in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses. This is third repetition. The fourth repetition. All the aliens, citizens, and alike with their elders and officials and judges were standing on both sides of the ark. Here they had a, a they're standing on both sides of the ark between two mountains because what this is is a covenant renewal ceremony. 
They are all, man, woman, and child, foreigner, and native, they're all pledging to obey the Lord. That's the fourth repetition. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he gave instructions to the people. That's the fifth repetition. Afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law. Sixth repetition. What did he read? Not just the law. He read the blessings and the curses. The blessings for people who obey the law and the judgments on those who don't obey the law. Just as it is written in the book of the law. I've lost track. Is that six? Now there was a word of... Uh, uh, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly. Why did he say it another time? He just said, Moses read the, I mean, Joshua read the whole law. Now he says there wasn't a law that jo Moses wrote that Joshua didn't read. So seven, eight times I've lost track. What he's saying is, they sinned. They turned their back on God. God turned his back on them. They came back. God came back. And now they know what happens when they sin. Now they know what happens when they turn away. And so at the end of this chapter, Joshua said, look, this has to be reinforced. We have to renew this covenant that we've broken. And he had them in a worship service before God, and they met together. And seven or eight or nine times, the author drives home. They promised to obey God from this point forward. They promised to love and serve and obey him. Forgiveness was granted. But there's a problem when God forgives us. Is we could take, take, take him for granted. As if forgiveness is cheap. As if, you know, uh, one comedian said, God's in the business of forgiving, which is great because I'm in the business of needing forgiveness. You know, we can take God for granted. And so in this chapter, we read that God forgave. But we read that it cost something. It cost somebody his life and his family and all he owned. We read that God forgave, but that he also stipulated that this was not going to be a continuous cycle of you sin, I forgive, you sin, I forgive. But he called them to a covenant renewal, a commitment that says, we will obey now. And that's the second part of Joshua's message in chapter 8. And, and this is the message throughout Joshua. That God blesses. God is gracious. God forgives. And yet he calls for and insists on obedience. It's a two-part message. Not just a message of forgiveness. And certainly not just a message of condemnation, but a message of forgiveness, which requires reciprocation by obedience. I'm going to have to skip some of what's in your outline, so never mind. Moving on. What I want to do is segue now to the New Testament. I think some of you already anticipated where this is going. Because the New Testament preaches pretty much the same gospel as Joshua 8. A few little wrinkles, but pretty much the same gospel. For you see, the, the message of the New Testament is this, that forgiveness has come to us in Christ. No matter what we've done, no matter what our past, no matter what we haven't done. And to this extent, the book is right. In Christ, there is nothing I've ever done that keeps me from God. There is nothing I've ever done that would make God love me more. And nothing I can do 
that would make him... There is nothing I have done that would make him love me less. And nothing I can do to make him love me more. God loves us and has offered us forgiveness. This is certainly the message of the New Testament. But Romans chapter 3, 24 to 25, we won't look there. You can look it up later. What does it say? That forgiveness cost. In this case, God didn't kill the sinner. In this case, Jesus died. Forgiveness still comes at a price. We are justified freely by his grace. But how is that possible? Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Forgiveness is still costly. In that day, in Joshua's day, it cost Achan his life. And in our day, it cost Jesus his life. As in Joshua, when that price is paid, we can be restored to God. Romans chapter 5 says this. In Adam, our fate was secured and we, were, we ran downhill. Everything ran downhill from Adam. But in Christ, all of that is reversed. Romans chapter 5. The result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. But the result of one act of obedience is justification that brings life to all men. Through the disobedience of the one man, many were made sinners. Through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. We are restored. All the harm done to us by ourselves, all the harm done to us as children of Adam has been restored and reversed by Jesus. So we see two parallels between Joshua and Jesus. We see, first of all, that forgiveness costs. We see, secondly, that forgiveness restores. And we see, thirdly, a point widely ignored in these songs and in this book, is that forgiveness requires. Take a look at, or listen as I read from Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 14. After proclaiming the freedom and the forgiveness that is theirs in Christ, Paul says to the church in Rome, Therefore, we have an obligation Our obligation is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if we live according to the sinful nature, we will die. He's telling this to Christians. But if by the Spirit we put to death the the misdeeds of the body, then we will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. In Joshua's day, as they came back to God and God came back to them, at the end of the chapter 8, Joshua renews the covenant with the people of Israel. God has forgiven you. Now go and obey. And in Christ, we have the same message. God has forgiven us. He's restored us. He's renewed us. Now go and obey. The one difference between Old Testament and New is this. They could never meet that stipulation. And in the New Testament, the Spirit has been given. Jesus has given us His Spirit, and now we can meet that condition. The condition is still there, but we can meet it now. Pulling it all together. If today, if this morning, you sit here and you find yourself in egregious sin, Not in some excessive guilt feeling, 
But if you find yourself in egregious sin this morning, let it be clear if it's not already. You are in danger. You are in mortal danger. Don't say to yourself, in Christ there is nothing I can do that will make God love me more or or nothing I could do that would make God love me less. But you can get out of danger. The price has been paid. Jesus paid it. God will welcome you back in Christ. But you must commit your life to him. This may not be the sort of gospel that American self-esteem culture embraces, but it is the gospel and the only gospel that the Bible knows. Forgiveness is available through Christ and his death. Forgiveness requires, then, a reciprocation of obedience to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, it is such a struggle to hold these two things in balance. The great joy that forgiveness is available and the great cost so that we do not take that forgiveness for granted. Father, by your spirit, help us to believe and affirm and live out both of those truths. That forgiveness is available and that forgiveness must be met with obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.